Tim Goldstein, autistic adult and your host for Life in a Neurotypical Universe, where we take a look at life from the perspective of an autistic adult. This is episode two of Theo Smith at Life in the Neurotypical Universe. We, of course, had a long conversation, is quite normal here in Life in the Neurotypical Universe, and it turned into two episodes. So you're catching us now starting on episode two. If you didn't hear episode one, go back and check it out, because Theo has lots of great things to say. And if you already did, well, let's dive into episode two so you can enjoy the rest of the conversation. You know, I, I want to back up to something that uh, you mentioned, you talked about a little bit, which is communication. I focus a huge amount on communication. And listening to you speaking, you, you have emotionality in your voice. And I think I have some emotionality in my voice also. Now, mine was learned. I, I went to the best vocal coach in the world and was trained. He actually told me, I'm going to teach you how to put emotional sounds into every word that you say. That's it. That was his goal. Get emotional sounds in my voice. Because I used to be one of those stereotypical monotone speakers that went way, way too fast and was really boring. And uh, we, we all know that style. And the other thing that you mentioned where this fits in is masking. And too many people, I think, and when I say too many people, ND people, want to say that anything that is different than what feels normal to their, quote, authentic self is masking. Well, neurotypicals have to conform to some general standards also. And I look at it as if if you and I were you know, deciding we wanted some, some good food and some great art, we might go to France or we might go to Italy. You know, good food and great art, both places. Now, would it be useful to learn a few words of their native language so we can find the bathroom? Probably be helpful to have that. Is that masking or is that using a tool that's going to help us interact better? And I think we have too many times that we're doing things that are really using a tool and calling it masking. Now, I agree there's masking where you're trying to totally suppress that you're different at all. Okay, there, there is such a thing as masking. It is increasingly stressful. It is damaging. It is, it is not good. But not everything that is different from the way you would do it if you were in the middle of the woods and can do whatever you want to do is masking. I think a lot of it is, is using tools that we've learned as humans to allow us to have civilization and socialization. And one of those, and this is where the communication part comes in, is the majority of individuals in the world go, I would essentially say, emotion leads logic for the majority of people. You, they, you react from the emotion first, and then maybe if you can get past that, then you'll process the logic part for a lot of people. In the ND community, that can be different. And because of the style of their communication, not necessarily the words they're using, although that can be part of the problem also, 
but just the style, the, the monotone, the flat affect, the no emotion in it, is conveying things that are making the receiver not process the message the same way they would as if you and I were saying it, where there's excitement, there's emotion, there's liveliness there. And to me, that is one of the areas that we need to start teaching people that that's a tool and you need to learn to use the tool. And how do you teach it? I don't know. You're the one that went through drama school. I mean, I, I'm sure that you've learned some of your dynamic style came from, from acting and from going through drama and such. Mine was by studying with one of the best singing vocal coaches in the world who obviously singing, delivering emotion. It's all about the emotion. It's not the words, it's the emotion that counts. So I don't know what's, I'm just going to throw it out there. What, what's your thoughts? I, I think it makes you a far better communicator because a larger audience is going to be drawn into you because of that emotion, then they're going to be now willing to listen. Versus if you were just talking like this and really flat and really boring about three minutes in, they, they're, they're zinging out, man. They're just like falling out of their chairs. God. <laughs> so I, I, you know, um, I won't profess to have enough data and insight uh, in my head to be able to, um, to be able to say, why people end up communicating in the way that they do, right? Um, and there'll be there'll be multiple reasons why somebody may talk and, and it may come across being quite flat or being quite negative or being quite angry or being like disengaged or you know so many different things or being too energetic and or any number of other factors that are, people just are so often call me too empathetic. What the too empathetic? Do you know what I mean? Like I. I how like you're hitting me with too empathetic? Like that's something I should, um, I, I should go home and cry about that. I need to adapt and change myself because I'm too empathetic. Um, that is something I can live with. If that Theo was too empathetic on his grave, I'll take it. Right, I'll take <laughs> right. it. I, um, that that is something I can live with. Um, but I think that's again it. So if I think about the context of masking it, is somebody, um. Is somebody talking in a very flat, monotone way because they've not been listened to, because they've been ignored, because they've been disregarded, disengaged, disconnected? Um, perhaps when they were in school, for example, they may have been bullied, mistreated. Um, so like all of these factors, you build these early experiences when you were a young person, and let's call that trauma, right? Because that the, the level of the, some of the stuff that happened then when you were a child, most people are not realizing the physiological responses you're getting as an adult are because of some of those things. Um, I, I can explain some of them if you like, but it, it, ultimately, they, some of these things is what a lot of us struggles come to terms with, um, with things that happened in, in our childhood. And so I don't know whether or not the way that some people communicate. Um, is because they are autistic or because of the way that they've been treated by others. And therefore, part of that I'm then questioning is masking, that there's a lifetime of masking, i.e. not talking in a way where you're going to be seen or heard or looked at because you're keeping it low-key. You're not using too much emphasis. You're keeping everything quiet and back and down 
uh, and so you won't be noticed, so people won't bother you, and you'll say as little as possible. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to label um, people with that, right? Because I'm just saying that that is just another concept and thought around some of these life journey and why they may be the way that they are, um, and they may be autistic, right? So, and and they may have had all those experiences, and possibly the way that they respond and engage is because of those experiences, not because of their neurological makeup, right? Now, somebody else may be nonverbal. That may not be to do with their experiences as a child. That is, they are non- There's other things that are happening neurologically that are beyond my level of expertise to talk about, right? But I just think if we start to think about that, then what, what we think about masking is some things, I agree, you're right, actually. We conflate these things. We put them together when they're not. And sometimes by using them in one context, we actually devalue them in another context. And if we overuse these phrases, then it becomes the same thing as people going, well, we're all a little bit ADHD. Or, <laughs> oh, I was a bit dyslexic when I made a mistake. No, you weren't a bit dyslexic. You made a mistake. You made People make mistakes. But there's a difference between making a mistake with your spelling and not seeing the words in the way others see them, not seeing the letters in the way others see them. Um, And, you know, that's important. And I think probably the same with masking. People mask differently because of their life journey. Sometimes it's masking, sometimes it's not. But I, I do, coming back to your point, believe that we need to empower individuals. We need to empower individuals to better understand um, how to leverage opportunities to your point again, which is um, whether it's teaching, coaching, or just letting people into the secret. We see the same secret in other areas of DEI where people have faced blockers, blockers because of their gender or um, their ethnicity or whatever other blocker, right? We need to let them know what the secret is to getting the thing that people with a different skin color or a different gender just get. They just get it. If you're born into a family of doctors, much easier for you to become a doctor, right? If you're born into a family of lawyers, much, so, so then put that out into uh, uh, or the whole wide variety of, of, of human makeup, right? If, if, you've, if the rules are there from the beginning of time when you were born, it's much easier for you to follow those rules. Those rules exist in every facet and aspect of human existence, right? We often don't think about them too much, but they are there, right? For somebody to get a job in a, in a certain organization, in a law firm where there's not a single black person there, for a black person to get in, they don't know the rules, right? They don't know what they have to do. And do we just say, well, um, that's the end of it? Or do we say, actually, we need to provide the individual with the tools to know whilst educating the employer, they need to open up their doors to let this person through. Right? That, it's that combination which is really important. And I think that's not to diminish somebody's feeling that they've had to mask because there's a lot to unpack there, but it is to support them and say, well, you know, shouldn't have to mask so often uh, and you need support with that but also you need to understand you need to you need to understand some of the rules um, and that it's not all going to be one way 
Right? We can't change the whole world for you. We have to change some parts of the world because they're not working for everybody. But we also have to give you the key to unlock the gate when you get there. And I think that I think that's really important. And if we start to think of it, that comes back to working together, comes back to breaking down barriers. It comes back to saying we can talk in our community that we feel comfortable in. But at some point, somebody is going to have to stand up and talk with the rest of the world. Otherwise, we seek segregation over inclusion. And that is not productive. And I know sometimes it feels easier and better just to go into our little defined group that we've made for ourselves and sit comfortably there and never want to go out. But that's not good for the world. That's not good for the progression uh, of, of human race, right? We, we, we need, we've seen too much of this segregation of views um, and, and people going into this small little environments and not wanting to come out. The problem is at some point we all have to come out. At some point, we have to engage with those we may not have wanted to engage with. Um, and if, if we don't start to make effort to do that in some meaningful way, where we know we're going to hear things we disagree with, we know we're going to hear things we might not like, but how can we influence it? You, you, so you, you think, said something that was, uh, this is so interesting to me, which is that sometimes Again, we, we were talking about flat affect, flat monotone kind of voice. That is actually a masking that built up over years for the person. And when you talk to them and start saying, you need to put some emotionality in because most humans aren't going to respond well to you if you don't come across with some emotional tone. And then they want to tell you that's masking. And the reality is, I think you're right. They've been masking so long that they now think that's who they are. <laughs> Whereas if we went back far enough, found them in kindergarten, they, they probably were using ranges of tones and different volumes and all different word lengths and all those different emotional cues that come across in our, our vocality. So I, I never quite thought of it that way, that essentially they've been, for whatever reason, and as you say, it can be a million reasons. It can be neurological, it can be how they were treated, it can be how they were told by everybody, they were you're worthless, they're no good, whatever. It, it's a million reasons. But it comes to the point where they start not, uh, losing sight of what the mask actually is and think the mask is who they are, when really, if we could strip off that mask and let out who they really are, that was really the secret that they need. You got to go in and, and be you know, you know, a little more lively. You, you can't be that suppressed and just quiet and sit in the back because nobody's going to think that you're going to be able to do very much. You're just worthy of being led around like sheep because you're kind of sounding and acting like sheep. So you got to come in with a little bit of excitement. I, I know when I was doing my interviewing of recruiters, and I happen to love recruiters, by the way, uh, supported my career for years and years through recruiters. So when I, I interviewed recruiters, HR, uh, hiring managers, when I was writing my Geek's Guide to Interview book, and the question that I would always ask them is, you have a, a candidate that is 100% qualified. I mean, they have checked every single box. They are so qualified. They got, they got everything on the wish list, but they don't get the offer. 
why do they lose the job? And this was the answer that was virtually universal across every single person I asked. They didn't express enough interest in the job or the company. In other words, they didn't say, this is, sounds so exciting. I'd love to be working at this company. When do I start? <laughs> Instead, they just, thank you very much for interviewing. Okay, bye. And they just judge that as saying, well, the person's qualified, but I just, I don't know. They just don't seem like they're, they're very excited about being here. And it's human nature, isn't it? So if you say to somebody, oh, would you like to come for some dinner or some lunch? And they're like, nah, well, I suppose so. You kind of feel like, right. Um, okay, well, I'd rather spend my lunch with somebody who wants to come along. Right. But, but, the, other, but the other challenge that we have with that, um, which is, what we need to challenge the, the recruitment and HR world about and hiring managers is that that individual again may lack self-confidence and um, other people may have put kryptonite in the world that has harmed them. It doesn't mean that they can't do an incredible job. And again, that just comes back to the point of it's, it's, it's like the two way piece of we need to help human beings better advocate for themselves, see themselves, see their strengths which they often don't, they get, they lose sight of their strengths. What, like, what are you good at? What do you like to do? And they just, maybe sometimes they've lost it because they've worked for the same company for too long and it just, they lose sight of it. Um, and when they, when people can lean into their strengths, often that's where you see the energy come. And I, I think it's, but, but, but they need to see it. They need to know what it is. I think it's, as you were saying, you've got to let the people know what the secrets are for the different things. And if you're, if you're in the recruiting field, then obviously one of the secrets you probably want to tell a, uh, somebody who's going to interview is at least at the end, say you're excited to go work for yeah, them. Yeah, you want to do the job. Right. Uh, even if there's nowhere else that you're excited, at least at the end, think about your, your favorite special interest and, and just say, what a great place. I'd love to be here. <laughs> But again, that's one of the secrets that most people don't tell you that I, I know, when, again, when I was starting to do my whole book thing, I sat down with some of my geek buddies. I, I think one of the people was ND, another uh, one, borderline, third one, definitely, no, neurotypical. And I asked them uh, what they thought was the number one challenge that they had. And they were all from the tech field. It was all you know, database people, actually. And what was the number one challenge that they felt they had when they were interviewing for a job? And what they all agreed the number one challenge was convincing all the people they interviewed with how technical they were. In other words, they didn't know the secret. The secret wasn't to convince them how technical you are. The secret was to convince them how excited you are to work there. <laughs> and, and often the other thing is, uh, what I, I think what very few people really consider about is how much managers interviewing generally don't like interviewing. So you go into an interview, being interviewed by somebody who really doesn't want to be interviewing you. They need somebody in their team. They want somebody in there. But especially if that is a very structured interview process, which may be evidence better to show it's fair and more transparent, but can make it really difficult to be human. <laughs> so, so then the manager's thinking, oh, I've got to go into this 
process where I'm not going to be human. I'm not going to be myself. It's, I've got to make sure I've got everything down. I've got to make sure I score properly. I've got to make sure I've got to do all these things to be fair and transparent. But then I barely look up this person in front of me. And then I'm having to make judgments because uh, quick judgments, because I'm missing so many of the, the human connection points. And like, because a candidate doesn't know that often not thinking about it, the candidate can be completely disengaged or disempowered um, by the fact that they see people in front of them that themselves don't look enthusiastic by what's going on. And then they're like, do I want to work for this company where these three people are just, you know, they look like they're going through the motions, but they're concentrating, you know, they're trying to make sure they don't embarrass themselves and maybe in front of HR who might be sat in the room or whatever it is, or their manager. Um, so I think these, these very important lessons that, you're right, often don't get shared. Um, expectations are so high for managers, so much pressure. And uh, um, they have so little time in a lot of organizations as well. So we raise these expectations of what managers should be doing. Um, and we keep raising the bar in terms of what they should be delivering. Uh, and without really considering the impact on them, their mental health, their well-being, and they may be ND as well, right? So you, you think of all these things, so I think it's uh, it's easy to to always put the focus on an organisation should a manager should and I'm a big advocate. That's why I do a lot of my work is doing influencing organisations and managers. But I do think empowering individuals is just so important. Helping them see what they can't see, helping them feel what they may not be able to feel in that moment because they may not have felt it before. Um, helping to go through those experiences. That means it's not the first time because if somebody asked me to walk from A to B and it's the first time I've done it and I've got my phone, I, okay, you know, Google or whatever else may be brilliant for taking me there now, right? But I still, in London, walk out of a tube and end up walking the wrong way <laughs> all the time. And it takes me a good hundred steps to realize I'm going the wrong way. And my phone, good phone, but for some reason it loses connection with the, the thing quite often. So, and then I'm, where am I? Which way am I going? I'm getting all confused. My brain's spinning around. So because it's the first time I've done it, that little journey, it's high, highly uh, levels, high levels of anxiety, stress around the whole thought of it. And then the experience is not nice. I'm then in a major busy city with lots going on. I, so you just put that experience into anything you do in your life, right? If it's the first time you've interviewed for a particular type of company, first time you've interviewed, um, first time you've interviewed in 10 years or first time you've joined a team and sat with the team, like every single thing you do in your day, when it's a first high levels of anxiety and stress, almost no matter who you are, right? And for people who are ND, if they face a lot of stigma and stress in their lives already, you can just amplify that by 50, for example. So being able to give people the key, being able to show people the path, being able to people, allow people to experience something before they have to go and do it is very, very powerful. And maybe there's something in that, right? Maybe there's something in organizations becoming much better at sharing the types of processes they go through and allowing individuals to go through test sites on scale so that they can really understand the types of processes and then the outcomes um, that come from going through certain processes, whether that's recruitment, onboarding or whatever else it may be. 
because I think that's where you can reduce the stress and anxiety. That's where you reduce the masking. And that's where you then enable people to at least, at least be a little bit more comfortable and a bit closer to showing you their skills and their abilities. And let's be honest, right? What manager doesn't want to sit in an interview and hear somebody do well at selling themselves, right? What, like no manager wants to sit in an interview and go, tell me about yourself and get nothing back. So tell me how you built that piece of technology and get very little back, a yes or no. Like no, no manager wants to be sat there doing that. Really, you would just love to sit back and have this person tell you everything that you need done. And then you can score them effectively. You can make a proper decision about their skills and their capabilities. The problem is we don't live in that world because of um, all of the things that I've mentioned that can impact somebody's ability to share those experiences, those skills, those strengths, those capabilities. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much focused, and this is maybe next 12 months beyond, how can we democratize a lot of these systems, processes, assessment methodology? Because companies ultimately often have to go with um, focus on cost as well, which is not good for people if they don't have choice. So choice is a real powerful thing that we could provide to people. And, and until we find a way of democratizing some of these processes, we're going to limit choice. And if we limit choice, we limit accessibility. And if we limit accessibility, we're going to continue in this cycle of not bringing in the variety of minds that we really need for the future of organizations, for the future of governments, of leadership, of, uh, of this world. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you say. One thing, though, I think that this fits in. You, you didn't quite, you didn't say this, but I, I think it fits into everything that you said, which is we no longer respect failure. Failure is if you fail once, and you were describing it, uh, you, you didn't say it in these words, but you, you stepped out of the tube and uh, you, you popped up uh, the maps and you started walking the totally wrong way. And, and I do it all the time and I hate using uh, the stupid thing on the phone because I do the same thing. It's like, what way do I go first? The stupid <laughs> idiot phone. I, <laughs> you got to go the wrong way before it will tell you what the right way is. Yeah. And I, I think this, uh, I, I'm seeing it more and more with younger generations that were uh, diagnosed as they were in school versus older generations where we were diagnosed as adults or maybe not even diagnosed. And the difference that I see is the older workers have gone and just tried and failed enough times to figure out what's going to work. And the failure wasn't looked at as, oh, I failed. I'm just going to crawl back in my ball and, and sit in the basement and play video games forever. The failure was looked at, okay, why didn't it work? What could I have done better? Ask the recruiter, if you work with a recruiter, can you get me some feedback? Where, where did I not do well? All those kind of things, try and improve through it. I'm convinced, and of course you, you read about very successful people, and, and this is pretty much true of almost every successful person, is that success is, is uh, littered with failure on both sides of the road behind you. But we no longer respect that. And uh, we say, that's it, I failed. I'm never going on an interview again. We don't look at it as being, 
oh, well, no, that wasn't a failure. That was a learning experience. And the fact that it didn't get the outcome you wanted, okay, that part was a failure. But the whole process was not a failure. The process was a great education. And and when I started my own company, I started a manufacturing company. Zero background in it. Decided I needed two careers at once. So I started a manufacturing company. And I I was blowing up $1,000 worth of stuff every night trying to learn to run these machines the size of cars of just bam, and there goes another $300 bit and pile of metal. And But was that failure? I, I didn't consider that as failure. I considered that as don't do it that way again. And 10 years later, I had a company that was running quite well, producing really good products, and we were selling them around the world. But if I had stopped after the first bang when it broke, I, I, I never would have gotten there. So I don't know, what's, what's just your take? Have you seen kind of a, a difference between people who found out that they were ND later in life versus people who found out they were ND essentially in, in their education system, primary or, or secondary school? Uh, I think it's not that clear cut. I think it's, um, there's a lot to do with um, the support that you may have had, whether that's from your family, the school system, um, any uh, carers, any people responsible for your well-being. Uh, I think that plays a significant impact in um, how you see failure. The, the encouragement, um, in other words, of your, your family and such. I, I would agree with you I there. Think so, yeah. I would definitely say that, yes, I, I do know some younger people who had families that encouraged them to try. And when it didn't work, encouraged them to go back and try it again and, uh, and learn through it. But then the term helicopter parent, of course, you know, comes to mind where, where they just you know, drop in and save the kid every time something goes wrong. And, yeah. and we pin a, a participation ribbon on your chest because you, you showed up. When, when I went to school, you got first, second or third or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you wanted to do better, you went out and you know, joined the team, went to the coach, said, how do I get better at doing this thing? Uh, you, you put in the miles, you put in the reps, whatever it was. So yeah, I think you're right. Uh, do you have uh, parents that are encouraging you to say, no, that wasn't failure. That was a, a lesson. That was a good learning lesson. Let's move forward. But it's, at least in the U.S., it's hard to know. I think we have, we, we have a lot of... Uh, protectionism going on around the child of not giving them that chance to essentially what you and I did. Probably I'm guessing if, if you were anything like me, if kids nowadays did what you or I did when we were kids, we'd be in jail. (laughs) Yeah. No. And I think that's true. It's uh, and talk about that quite a lot, obviously within known family networks and things, uh, the level of freedom I had as a child, rightly or wrongly, was um, significantly different to, to my children's experiences. But I also think that's the nature of, of the world that we now live in, this globalization, technology-driven, um, social networks, um, the ability to see and hear about things um, at the click of a button, which is really powerful, but also it adds a level of fear and anxiety around um protection of children and, and that can be problematic in terms of the development of that child sometimes uh, you know I, I sometimes think um with my child you know if she was just allowed to be on a farm and 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 
and run around and just enjoy that environment and learn from that environment and do all the things that you need to learn in school, but in that environment, that would be such an incredible experience for her life, right? Um, and I'm sure there's still examples across the world where that can be the case. Th- that was my example. Is- I actually grew up on, on a farm and uh, went to you know a school district that I was bused to that was a very, very top school district of mostly professionals. So I was got the high-end education, and it was public school, but- yeah. Then I had the freedom when I came home to be a kid on the farm and chop down trees and, and build bridges over the creek and uh, make bonfires and just, again, things that, you know, we, we would be arrested nowadays for doing most of that yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Some of those things are important. They're important for, for you, you know, your development and your mental health and well-being. We try and, uh, you know, thinking about young people now we need to try and find those moments for our children we need to take them out into the forest because actually quite easily they can not you can think they don't want to do it right because it's sometimes hard to get them out the house but the reality is is when you get them out and when you get them into this space into the forest into the trees um into the mountains when you get them there and see what happens, see what's going on in their mind, it, it's, trans- it's transformative for all of us, right? It's good for our mental health and well-being to get out there. But certainly for young people, I think there is a lack of it. And a specific problem, if you're in a major built-up city and where there's limited access, where you're from a low socioeconomic background, so limited funding and support to be able to get out, like that, that is problematic, I think, because I think ND brains do need um, that variety um, for brain stimulation and otherwise, as I found, can find it in negative places and spaces. Um, and that can become addictive or, um, impulsive. I would probably say more than addictive. Um, I never feel I've ever been addicted to anything, but I've had high levels of impulsivity around doing things again and again and again and again. Uh, but however, being able to stop them really quickly, if I find something else that takes my interest and, and engages my brain in the way that I need it to. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely think that if we can, the younger generation now coming through, if we can find ways to engage the ND brains, um, then hopefully we allow them to um, focus on failure, focus on um, doing things again and again and not getting them right, but learning from it, enjoying it, uh, ensure that they get to lean in their strengths. Those strengths should include going out. Those strengths should, uh, you know, it should be about getting out into the wider world. I do more of what I wanted to do when I was young. Now as an adult, I just do them in a different way. I'm not acting on a stage, but I perform on a stage almost every week, whether it's to organizations or in big events or in podcasts or like I'm doing the thing I always wanted to do. I'm just doing it with, a greater value and level of purpose than I ever believed I could do it. Uh, and that is, that is powerful. And if we can get young people to, to learn quickly, to uh, learn to fail quickly uh, and therefore to get to the place where they understand what it is that gives them energy, then, wow, I just think that, we could, that could impact the, um, some of the challenges that we have around health well-being, um, people ending up in prisons, yeah, all of these things, people spending too many years thinking that they can't do something or that they failed once so that they should never try again or um, that other people said that they weren't any good and that that affects them so badly they never try again. Like, if you 
we can capture people as early as possible, um, then I think that's where we can make a really significant impact to people's lives and where they can go on and flourish and be very successful. Um, but it, the education system's a tricky one. That's <laughs> yeah, that, that is a trick piece. in there. I, I always say when, when parents that have particularly newly diagnosed uh, neurodistinct children, and they ask, well, what should I do to give them a, a good shot in life? And my answer is always expose them to as many things as you humanly can. And the ones that they find that they like, as long as it's not dangerous, you don't want them playing in traffic. That's not, that's not a, a good, fun thing to do. It might be fun, but it's not a good thing to do. But as long as it's not something that is you know, overtly dangerous, if they have an interest, then indulge that interest. Let, let them dive into that collecting bugs or whatever crazy thing it happens to be. It doesn't really matter. So I think that that, that whole exposure becomes so important, as you say, instead of restricting of getting them out into the woods, letting them see what, what it's like to go hiking up a mountain. And it doesn't matter that the first time that they don't get up the mountain. Uh, you know, it might take 10 times going back before they actually make it to the peak. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But that, that exposure, I think, is, uh, you're right, it, it's so important to be able to find out what is it that you actually do like. And, and I agree with you, as an adult now, I get to do all kinds of things that, as a kid, I always like, liked to do. But now I get to do them on a whole higher level because, A, I can afford lots of nicer equipment and fancier stuff and all that <laughs> stuff. And... Uh, the, uh, I, I live in, in a state that has, and I, I tend to do a lot of outdoor stuff. So I live in Colorado, 52, uh, 52 peaks that are over uh, 4,000 meters. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of opportunity to go out and kill yourself here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that is, is so important to, uh, to really that enrichment, I guess you would say, is give them the, the ability to expose them to all these different things. And uh, the school systems, you're, you're right, are a challenge. I, I was fortunate. As I said, I went to a public school, but it was a very enriched public school. I, I was taught woodworking. I was taught metalworking. I was taught ceramics. I was taught electronics. I was taught working with plastics. You know, now we would call that uh, a STEM education. Back then, they just called it shop class. Yeah. But those are things that have carried forward my entire life. Now, when there's a outlet in the house that needs fixing, it's like no big deal. It's like, you go fix it. I don't have to pay you know, a couple hundred dollars to have an electrician come in and uh, place one outlet. But again, that was, I had the fortune of being exposed to this wide variety. And I had parents that were encouraging. And I lived on a farm where you could do a lot of stuff. <laughs> so you, you combine it all together. And I, I think that's what makes a lot of the, the richness. I, I think another challenge that kids run into now is, and it, it's really, it's, it's social media, I blame for it, to be honest. And, and we could be blamed. I mean, heck, you and I could be a part of the fault just as well. Because if somebody listens into this conversation that we have, you and I have been holding a, a conversation for, I don't know, an hour, almost an hour and a half now or so. And lively conversation back and forth, very enjoyable. And people say, oh, I can't do a podcast. It's too hard. I, I can't. 
well, how long have you been doing this? How long have I been doing this? This has been years to get to this point that uh, you can just freeform rap. I mean, it, it, it really uh, comes down to uh, this is improv. And we're just improv as we go and having a good time enjoying each other. And I think too many of the kids now see people who are on social media that have been Photoshopped to death. They are doing it as professionals. You don't see the camera crew and everything that's behind them actually making them look like they actually look. And then they wonder why they can't manage to do any of those things. Well, that's because they don't have a $10,000 an hour crew with them that's making everything look perfect. <laughs> so Exactly, yeah. I think that's a challenge is they, they see that and they don't feel they can ever reach that level, but they don't realize they're looking at this isn't just another 18 or 20 year old kid. This is a professional in an industry that's called social media. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, and it's getting back to the, what, what is it that you enjoy about that? And that's what, that's what they need to find out, you know, and some, you know, sometimes I think for a lot of young people, they don't know. And, and it is a problem because it's taken me a good while to realize um, that the things that I enjoy, my strengths, uh, are, are things that I can implement into my daily work. They don't need to exist separately. And that um, if we think around the social media aspect of it, like the problem is most kids will be thinking about probably the money, the fame, um, the notoriety, whatever it may be. But in reality, do they enjoy the process? And what part of the process do they enjoy? Do they enjoy making videos? Why do they enjoy making videos? Do they enjoy the editing of those videos? Do they enjoy the... So being able to support somebody to come way back, don't think, and this is a lesson for any creator, don't think about the size of the audience you want to create. Think about what you want to create. And if you focus on what you want to create and you create it with value and care and compassion and love, energy, whatever it is, if you focus on that, then you start to create something meaningful and you start to see the elements of that that you enjoy. And then you can decide what you do from there. And it may well be that you're not going to become the YouTube influencer that you want, but you may well become the person who edits their videos, right? Or you may become um, a, whatever, a scientist or a, no, it, it doesn't matter, right? But it's just, but you know, it's, it's, it's like this. So you, you were right when you said earlier, we need to explore as many things as possible. Then we need to kind of capture what is it that we really enjoy and that makes us happy. Because otherwise we find ourselves sat in an office with a thousand other people on a telephone. And before we know it, that's become our life and that's become our source of income and food and something that puts a roof over our head. And it sucks the life out of us when really... If we had have understood that there's, we need more vitamin D, <laughs> therefore we need to do a bit more outside work. And, um, you know, maybe it was important that we start to focus on the thing that we enjoy, which is uh, some level of work that is incorporated to the outside rather than just being stuck inside. I mean, real base level understanding of, of what gives you energy. And I think not enough kids, not enough young people, not enough adults, have the support to be able to really think about what those things are and then how that is broken down into little bits and pieces across your work, across your life, across your relationships. And when you really start to understand 
what gives you the energy and, and what you find are the challenges, that's when you can start to maneuver things around to allow you to have enough time in those areas that you enjoy that also challenge you, um, but that linked with your strengths also, that then allow you to be able to deal with some of the things that you find really difficult. If we only spend too much time in those areas of challenge or difficulty, um, then it, it becomes too big a hill to climb for us ever to go away. And that's where we opt out. Um, and that's where people opt out and then make poor decisions. And those poor decisions can come back to haunt them for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so I, I think that's a, a very important reality of the world that we currently live in. And it's because there's these echo chambers that are not uh, productive for some people. Um, and that's why we need to cut through some of those echo chambers and allow people to see the reality of what's happening in the world. Like you said, we need to show them what's happening behind that individual. And actually that individual often is probably not that happy um, because they're working ridiculous hours and they may be traveling around the world, but they may not see the world, you know, and they may look like they're all, always done up, but they've been done up for the three minutes of video. And then, you know, they may well go back um, to a, a place of poverty because you don't know what, what is happening behind that, uh, who is influencing it, who is paying for it, who is instigating it. So I think we, we all need to take a lesson from that, right, to, to be able to understand the reality of uh, what's currently happening in the world. Uh, um, that's the old saying, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? The, the, that influencer, oh, they must have such a wonderful life and you don't realize that it's work. It is serious, serious work that they're doing. It's not, it's not a cakewalk by any means. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, Theo. I have enjoyed chatting with you so much and could do it for probably hours on end. And we'll definitely have to chat again, but can you share with uh, the listeners how the best way to reach out and contact you and, and particularly if they want to uh, engage you to come help with their company, speak to their company uh, or where do they find your book? How, how do we do all those you. things? <laughs> yes. So I, I LinkedIn is one of the biggest platforms for me as a recruiter by trade. Um, it's, it's where I spend a lot of time and it's where I probably the largest portion of the community that I engage with is in that space. So Theo Smith UK um, is where you can find me there. Um, and I'm also on other social media channels, um, but you're probably best off getting me there. And um, my book, Near Diversity at Work, that I co-authored with Professor Amanda Kirby, as you mentioned at the beginning, is, is an incredible um, person uh, who is a great advocate, evangelist, leader, technologist, entrepreneur, and a very lovely friend to have in my life. Um, that book is published by Colgan Page so that you can buy it if you're in the US or UK or most other parts of the world, either directly from Colgan Page or um, that lovely little place called the Amazon or <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> um, but uh, you can find in it uh, lots of other bookshops as well, that may be local things that you would like to support. Um, and we will, that one business book of the year award um, last year for diversity and inclusion and belonging category in business book awards, and which we're very proud about. And we're now going to start writing another book um, 
because we feel there's another gap that needs to be filled, which is why we wrote that book. Um, I've got a podcast myself that you can find on various channels, um, you know, Diversity Eliminated Kryptonite, Enabling Superheroes, uh, and I've got a YouTube page as well. Most of the links you can find via LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and I'm always happy for people to reach out to me, but you may have to reach out to me more than once because I focus on too many things at once and the brain can really only focus on one thing at once. So you can imagine how many problems that causes me. Well, wonderful. I will uh, chase all those links down and actually put them down in the show notes. And thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you for sharing all the the insight and wisdom that you gathered through your whole life journey. And uh, I hope uh, that you'll come back and uh, join us again in the future. Real pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Um, really enjoyable conversation. And yeah, I, I look forward to talking again soon. Nah, nah, nah. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode of Life in a Neurotypical Universe. Please, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Go take their phone and subscribe them. Hey, it will help us all out. If you want to know more about neurodiversity or have any questions for me, you can reach me at my website, timgoldstein.com, where I'll be more than glad to help you as best I can to navigate through the neurotypical universe.